Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. We talk a lot about autonomous systems, self-driving cars, drones, even tractors. But just because something is autonomous doesn't mean that it's alone. Self-driving cars, for instance, need to share the road with other cars both other self-driving cars as well as human-driven cars. And they don't drive for the sake of driving. They need to be responsive to their riders' needs, showing up when needed and getting their passengers to the destination safely, quickly, and comfortably. This creates both problems and opportunities for autonomous systems. It's a problem in that we need to design these systems to be responsive to one another, but it's also an opportunity because autonomous systems have capabilities to coordinate how they operate in ways that humans and human-operated systems cannot. That's the setting for our discussion today. I'll be talking with Bear Abdulhai. My name is Bahar Abdulhai. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto in the Department of Civil and Mineral Engineering. Whose work focuses on how we design intelligent transportation systems, both to solve these problems and take advantage of these opportunities. It's my understanding you are doing a lot of work with machine learning in traffic control systems in particular. Can you tell me a little bit, just as background, what ITS is and what the uh, traffic control portion is about? Sure. First of all, like let's understand the basics of congestion. Like We have traffic congestion because simply demand, that is the number of cars that want to use the road, exceeds the capacity of the road. So it's a simple ratio. If demand over capacity is close to or more than one, then we have congestion. So this happens certain periods of the day and it recurs. It's known as a recurring congestion. Or sometimes because of an accident, then you have a sudden drop in capacity or weather conditions, then this is known as non-recurring congestion. But what is common between the two is that you have uh, a demand that does not fit in the supply. So that's simply put, then what is the solution? The solution can be put in three bundles or three categories. One is to reduce demand, because if demand exceeds capacity, why there is that much demand? And there you go into solutions like, for instance, um, uh, carpooling, Mm-hmm. or a tougher solution, congestion pricing. So mm-hmm. you're trying to discourage people from uh, being in their cars, depending on, on their cars, and trying to push them towards more sustainable solutions, such as, for instance, public transit. You cannot beat a train full of 1,000 people. Uh, if this translates into 1,000 cars, then it, we're in deep mm-hmm. trouble. So right. that's the first category of solution, which is called demand management. Another solution is to increase capacity. If capacity is not enough, get bigger capacity. How do you do that? Build transit, public transit, or and or roads. And then here we can debate which one is better, which one is more sustainable, and the winner would be public transit, especially during peak periods, and higher order transit like commuter trains, uh, subway, uh, light rail transit, and so on. So, and of course, sometimes uh, in many places there is not sufficient transit. Therefore, 
the solution would be sometimes you have to, to expand the capacity of the roads. And, and sometimes the supply and demand can be related. If you create new supply that creates substitutes, so you might see intermodal substitution on the demand side. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's a loop. Like you, you, you alter the demand, the performance of the supply changes. You alter the performance of the supply. Demand also changes the known concept of induced demand. If you, for instance, double the lanes of the road, then suddenly people will start making new trips or abandoning transit and getting back into their cars and so on. So definitely there is interplay and back and forth communication between the supply side and the demand side. Um, now, a third category of solution, which is less obvious, is how to smoothen up the relationship between demand and supply for using technology, smart technology. This is where uh, intelligent transportation systems comes into play. For instance, uh, can a traffic light be endowed with eyes and a brain and it sees the approaching traffic and adjusts itself in real time? I'm having uh, a surge of traffic this way, I'm going to serve it, and then another surge of traffic in the opposite direction, then now I'm going to switch to it. So kind of like the traffic light is thinking, if you will, on its tippy toes and being as efficient as possible with its allocation of time. Mm -hmm. So what this gives you, like you haven't built anything extra, like you haven't expanded intersections or anything, but it gives you less delay at intersections. So it, it helps in that regard, get more out of the existing infrastructure without going through the magnanimous cost of billions of dollars of building new infrastructure. So if you were to look at a map of any road network, I expect during rush hour, really any time of the day, you probably would see clusters of cars that get clustered due to the traffic lights and behind them, it's empty road. So you actually have exactly. excess capacity that you're not using that if you can intelligently manage the the lights the signals in this example you're effectively doubling the amount of road capacity the number of cars that you can have on the road just through managing um and i i'm sure that's a, a rough order of magnitude approximation but you're able to get more cars either on the road or completing their trips more quickly just through managing the traffic yeah you reduce their wait time like imagine for instance you wait at each traffic light for a minute and then your commute to work takes you through, let's say, 30 traffic lights. So that's 30 minutes of waiting. If I manage to make this 30 minutes, 15 minutes, then there is 50% reduction in your wait time on traffic lights. What you do not want is to be stopped at a traffic light while the other direction has the green and there's nobody there. Mm -hmm. So that's real waste of time. So we want to be efficient with time in that regard. And this is just one example. If you take, for instance, freeways or people up emerging onto the freeway. So essentially you have a bottleneck and people are kind of like fighting who like it's like a zipper effect who, who gets in front of who. And in heavy periods of the day, that fight causes capacity drop, believe it or not. So typically if a freeway carries uh, 2,000 vehicles per hour per lane, you can lose 20% of that because of turbulence. Mm -hmm. And you lose that at the time of the day that you're desperate for any drop of capacity. So what do you do then? The, what you do is if you pace cars onto the road in a metered way, you put a simple ramp meter, which is a simple traffic light at the on-ramp, at the end of the on-ramp, and then you inject cars one at a time 
So each card that gets injected in like merges with ease and you, you get rid of that turbulence that is um, causing the capacity drop. So this, of course, will be at the expense of people coming from the on-ramp in favor of people on the freeway. But don't forget that you're now on the on-ramp, but a few minutes later, you will be on the freeway. So you'll benefit mm -hmm. from this treatment downstream. And that could be significant reduction in the time spent on the road. Roughly speaking, could be like 40% reduction in, in time spent on the freeway. It depends, of course, because if you're doing this, you keep getting efficiency. And then the last ramp at the very end of the freeway, the freeway will be jam-packed and you cannot do much about it. There are other solutions in this case, but this is one example. In other examples, it could be quite the opposite. I want to favor people from the on-ramp because, for instance, you're emptying a downtown core during the evening peak. So in the city of Toronto, for instance, the goal of the freeway is not to move people on the freeway as much as it is to drain the downtown. Mm -hmm. People want to get on the freeway. In this case, you could meter the main line itself, the freeway itself, with dynamic speed limits. So let's say the speed limit is 100 kilometers per hour. Uh, you say, okay, now, because we're during the peak, you need to slow down to 50 kilometers per hour. What that would do is kind of like keep traffic back a little bit on the main line so people from the on-ramp can get in quickly. So you start evacuating uh, the downtown core. So, But you want to be very careful with these processes so you wouldn't move the problem from one location to the other. So you want to help both in a manner that the overall system is helped. This intuitively sounds like a very complex system. And as a driver, every driver's experienced the, the red light or the congestion thinking, why can't they just make this more efficient? Why can't they fix it? Well, it, it might be the case, I can imagine, maybe it's more efficient for you actually to sit at that red light for an extra 45 seconds while traffic up ahead gets cleared or cross traffic up ahead gets cleared. And you can't see the interaction between all of the different nodes in the network. And a small change in one of those one nodes, I expect, can ripple through the rest of the network and uh, have pretty dramatic impacts at times. Yes, absolutely. So I keep trying to explain to my students is that pacing beats rushing. Like we call it rush hour for an unknown reason. No one is rushing anywhere. <laughs> um, uh, it's like you're psychologically rushing. You want to get home, but everything is standstill. So if you actually slow down a bit, like accept to be paced into the system such that what is being dumped into the system does not exceed the capacity of the system, then you'll end up going home faster. It sounds like a paradox or an oxymoron, but it's actually true in the sense that if imagine you're rushing in, you plug the drain. It's like plugging your, your sink. Uh, once it's plugged, there is no drainage at all. So you want to pour it slowly su such that what you pour in can get out of the system. And that saves quite a bit of time. And that, so, so what we talked about so far is like demand management, such as congestion pricing, carpooling, supply management, smart traffic lights and ramp control and so on, uh, or capacity building. Uh, but one ironic lesson we learned from the, the COVID era is that telecommuting works. Um, like all of a sudden, 100% of us had to stay home and traffic congestion completely disappeared overnight. I'm not saying let's stay locked up at home. Nobody wants that. But if 
uh, your five-day commute, you work from home two days a week um, and instead, uh, and then commute three days, that's 40% reduction in demand, right? If everybody does mm -hmm. that. Um, understandably, not everybody will be able to do that. People who can do their work on a computer can do that. But if you are um, a worker, uh, you need to go to, to put shingles on a roof, for instance, you cannot do that. But on the aggregate, if 20% uh, of the trips is done uh, through telecommuting, then that could go a long way in resolving congestion. So as I look through some of your work, there were a, a few projects or topics that stuck out, autonomous and zero passenger vehicles, uh, adaptive cruise control were uh, certainly two of them. I guess I'll just start. Can you tell us what a zero passenger vehicle is? I think that that's counterintuitive to many listeners' ears um, and some of the challenges that they create. Autonomous vehicles are cars that drive themselves. So you're no longer the driver. So you are essentially a passenger in the car. Now, imagine this scenario. I'm, I'm going to the dentist downtown, and it's going to take an hour or 45 minutes to an hour, and I can't find parking. And if I find parking, I'm going to cough up like $20, $30 or so to park. So the car can drive itself. So I can tell the car, you know what, keep going around the block for half an hour or 45 minutes and come pick me up. Now, this car has no sense of value of time, doesn't care much about congestion, so it can do that. Of course, it's going to impact everybody else. If we have zero occupant vehicles roaming around waiting for their passengers, uh, we call them zombie cars, then that could have very adverse effect on traffic conditions. If I commute to work, for instance, for 20 kilometers and decide not to pay for parking, then I send the car back 20 kilometers to park for free at home. And then when it comes my time to go home, it will come back. So my back and forth commute now is done four times for the car. Then that's doubling traffic and it's going to be a nightmare scenario. So autonomous vehicles have pros and cons. It's like a surgical knife. You can treat a patient or you can kill a person. So uh, like if autonomous cars, for instance, are used in an efficient way, like for example, you must have adaptive cruise control in your car, right? You can set the adaptive cruise control to kind of keep certain headway ahead of you and then the car drives itself. If that headway is too long, longer than a human driver would maintain in front of it, then the capacity of the road will be lower. So now the presence of autonomous vehicle is detrimental to the road. And the opposite is also true. If the headway in front of the car is shorter than a human typically does, then the road can take more cars. So we can increase the capacity of the road or deteriorate the capacity of the road, depending on how we program these vehicles to operate. So that's from the supply side. Now, from the demand side, as I mentioned, uh, we could instantly double the demand because of zombie vehicles, uh, because I don't want to park the car anymore. And every trip, it now becomes two trips. Then this is a big issue. Even further, that if my presence in the car is not as stressful anymore, I'm not sitting behind the steering wheel and driving and paying attention. Rather, I'm watching a movie or listening to music or even doing my email or even sleeping, right? So if, if, if the ride in the car is that comfortable, then I would be willing to commute more. Mm -hmm. So if like, for instance, commuting for an hour kills me currently, then I would not mind commuting for two hours. 
and live farther out in, in cheaper homes and, and so on. So that again increases the demand. So the point here is that autonomous driving is a double-edged sword. If left unmanaged, then it can be very, very detrimental. Like the car itself, like what did the car 100 years ago promises? I can take you farther um, uh, in, in comfort and style, much better than a horse can do, right? And once we had this machine under our feet, then suburbs grew and people started living in bedroom communities and commuting to, to work long distances. And the rest is history. We have you know oceans of congestion and freeways. So autonomous driving is essentially a similar revolution, but on steroids. It can be much, much worse. So the challenges that, or the questions that you're asking and problems that you're solving with autonomous vehicles seem to be different than the intelligent traffic control as the initial example. This isn't about how we control the traffic on the street with signals and the like, but this is actually how the cars operate and what do we do with the car once it's reached its destination. So I'll just ask, what do we do with the car once it's reached its destination? Once it no longer has a passenger, what should we do with it? Well, first of all, Autonomous driving touches on everything that we talked about because it can the autonomous vehicle itself can be used to smoothen traffic. In the previous example, instead of a ramp metering as a traffic light that is metering the ramps, the autonomous vehicle itself can pace itself on its merging to avoid that turbulence. Or if it is on the main freeway and it knows I'm approaching a ramp, then it starts slowing down and shifting to the left lane to make room for other ramps. So it can be used for traffic management, uh, but it also uh, drives itself, obviously, and we want to make the car formations as tight as possible in order to increase the capacity of the road. That's really cool. I, I just want to highlight what you just said. In effect, the car itself becomes a traffic control device. Absolutely. Let, let's say, for instance, I have uh, a bunch of cars and I want to slow them down. Uh, uh, me, as a traffic controller, I want to slow that platoon down because it's approaching congestion. Now, if the head of that platoon is an autonomous vehicle and the rest are human drivers, and I ask that autonomous vehicle to slow down, then everybody slows down. Mm -hmm. So it can be used as a control device, the, the car itself. So in addition to its own immediate driving task, it also can have traffic management tasks. So to your question about, okay, I arrived at work, what do I do with this car? Well, one qu good question to ask, why do you own a car in the first place? Because this autonomous vehicle can be repurposed. Like instead of me owning it, and once I get to work, I don't know what I have to do with it. I need to park it somewhere or send it back home. If this is a shared commodity, then it can drop me off and then picks you up and then deliver pizza and take some uh, Amazon deliveries and whatnot. So you can effectively reduce the need to park this vehicle and the need to own it in the first place. So with a, a smaller fleet of cars, you can service the needs of the community without having those massive parking lots everywhere. 
So what are some of the challenges I can expect? There are massive social and political and economic challenges to transitioning to this sort of world, but what are some of the technological challenges that you're working to address in how we would operate such a fleet? There are several. Let's try to stratify them. First of all, there's technological challenges in making the car itself drive itself. Like we know, we hear about Uber accidents and Tesla accidents and so on. So yes, the technology is amazing. It's coming. Cars are now being fitted with cameras everywhere and LiDAR and radar and this and that. But it's not 100% yet. Like it can make mistakes. And when mistakes happen, they are usually fatal. Uh, So one technological challenge here is how to make the driving process of the car better. So there's technology challenge there. The other challenge is, as we just discussed, how to use the vehicles as control mechanisms, the vehicles themselves as traffic management mechanisms. We need, for instance, instead of designing a ramp meter, now I'm designing a system that broadcasts to uh, approaching AVs, uh, connected autonomous vehicles, that uh, you're you're approaching a merging point, space up and merge smoothly, for example. So now I'm using the vehicles themselves as control devices to induce better traffic behavior. So this is like a traffic management strategy. Now, beyond these two technical issues, how to drive and how to manage traffic, there are also social issues. And the predominant challenge there is that People, when given choices, they they take the choice that is best for them, even if it's detrimental for the system. Mm-hmm. This is known as the tragedy of the commons. That if you have a free commodity, people overconsume it, consume it to their own detriment. So traffic is is not much different. That it's, a, it's called the freeway. Everybody <laughs> get in, and then, and then. You get in and it stops. So we caused our own detriment. Mm -hmm. So we need to explain to people, uh, people need to be, the public that is, needs to be educated that sometimes this is more. Sometimes like pace yourself, you will arrive faster. If you, for instance, go to the dentist and let your car drive around, guess what am I going to do? I'm going to do the same. So on your way home, you'll find my car waiting for me while I'm buying bread from the supermarket. Uh, and so on. So here we create our own detriment. So behaving in this case would be helpful for everybody. But if history is any lesson, people don't behave in a manner that's conscious of the system on their own. Mm -hmm. So there has to be incentives and disincentives, and this is the role of the traffic management uh, layer. So I I wondered, how do you incorporate that into the traffic management layer. I'm I'm thinking an example, when you gave the example of the AV slowing down to slow down the human drivers behind it, I I was thinking just how angry all those drivers behind it were going to get. And uh, there's an example, airports are frequently designed so that there is a lengthy walk from the gates to the baggage claim. And that's often intentional because 
if the passengers are standing there for five, 10 minutes at the baggage claim waiting for their bags, they're getting angry and frustrated and feeling like they're waiting. But if they're walking five to 10 minutes to get to the baggage claim and then their bag is there waiting for them, they feel like they're, they haven't wasted any time. It's a, a simple psychological trick. Do we incorporate that sort of thinking at this stage into traffic management or is that possibly bringing in the psychological elements later in once we actually have the technology better developed and implemented? Well, well, there has to be public information and education in the sense that people need to understand that if this autonomous vehicle is slowing down and slowing me down, I will arrive faster. And this is the, the you know, the, the challenge how to explain this to, to lay people and there are ways to explain it. But once you, you realize that this is for your own benefit, then why not? People object when they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like when, take a congestion pricing as, as an example. In many cities, the attitude towards congestion pricing has been hell no. Like no more taxes, Not keep your hands off my pocket. And once they tried it on experimental basis for like three, four, five, six months, they, they wanted it because they are, realized that this is for everybody's benefit. So uh, like public education goes a long way uh, in this regard. And sometimes that's a, a really nice point. Sometimes the education comes through implementation. It's hard to just communicate the idea and convince people frequently, let me explain to you why this is going to be better for you. Yeah. But once you show it to them and they see, oh, in practice, this is actually working, it's going to uh, be much easier to sell it as public policy. Yes, absolutely. And we use simulations like virtual reality type digital twins of road networks to to explain that so you can run it in front of people and tell them okay like without this you spend 100 minutes on the road with this you spend 70 minutes on the road let's say so right there do you see that this is actually a good thing as opposed to a nuisance for them so that that was another question i was interested in as you're developing your control systems and algorithms and implementing and testing them do you do this solely through simulation or do you have test vehicles, test tracks where you're actually able to implement these technologies and see them in operation? Uh, it depends who you're talking to. For me, I'm a traffic management guy. So most of our work so far is in simulation. And only recently you started talking to municipalities about taking the courageous step and putting AI in traffic lights and so on. So my, my hope is that within couple of years or so we can deploy one or two or a few just to demonstrate in real life that this actually works my colleagues who work uh, in designing the cars themselves then they have test tracks and, and they put cars on the road to see how how they drive themselves but not me like i cannot experiment with a city uh, <laughs> and, uh, we have to do small steps first Mm-hmm, right, that 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 makes sense. So when when you were describing uh, with the transition to AVs, you you noted that it wouldn't make sense for people to own cars anymore. Instead, you would uh, when you needed a car, you would be able to have one come pick you up. It would drop you off, and then it would 
go do something else. I think in some of your work, you discuss this as a transition from a, a queuing to a reservation system where you'd be reserving the car. Can you say a little bit more about what that distinction queuing versus reservation means and what some of the implications are? Yeah. Well, the reservation system is uh, one line in my research that um, it's not just reserving the car as, for instance, calling an Uber. It's, you, you'd actually reserve the road. Like, let me give you a, a, maybe a little example that everybody can relate to. Imagine, for instance, you have an aeroplane with 200 seats and 400 passengers at the gate want those 200 seats. If you just let you know what, get in, grab a seat if you can. They will kill each other and this airplane is not getting going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you manage that? You say, okay, wait a second. You have to have a reservation two months ahead of time, uh, two days ahead of time. And that reservation will cost you, depending on when you made the reservation, if you know about your trip and book it six months in advance, it will be dirt cheap. But if you want to fly tomorrow to London, then it might cost you $5,000 and so on. So there is a reservation process. This reservation process treats the road as limited capacity commodity, like the airplane with 200 seat. And because demand exceeds the available capacity, then it has to be first come, first serve reservation. You say, okay, I'm going from my home to downtown. Here's my route. I'm taking the freeway. Then you are assigned a slot on all the links uh, that takes you to your uh, destination. And everybody does that. When the road becomes full, i.e. reaching capacity, then if you, new reservations come in, we tell you, you know what, it's full. The system is full. We have to shift to another time. Maybe you travel half an hour earlier or half an hour later, or not at all. If you can do something else, take transit or um, telecommute or whatnot. So this is what is meant by a a reservation system. And the dream here is to have congestion-free network. And to your question, how is it turning from a queuing system to a reservation system? The queuing system is the status quo. Like here is the freeway available for everybody. You want to get in, get in. Everybody butts in and nobody moves, Mm -hmm. right? So you're waiting and waiting and waiting until the system drains itself gradually and slowly. So you're enduring a lot of wait time in the system, queuing inside the system itself. As opposed to, if I tell you, no, wait a second, don't leave at 8, leave at 8.45, because then there is a slot for you that will take you much faster there. So it becomes like a, a reservation system where you're not being queued on the road. You're just waiting at home, putting your time or uh, at, the, at your origin, putting your time to good use. And when this, your slot comes in, then you get in and, and complete complete the trip. When you're thinking about constructing these reservations and uh, allocating the resources for each trip, again, I expect that there's a complex mapping problem here. There are multiple routes between any two destinations, and perhaps there's a congested, a lower capacity route between my house and where I work, and a lot of people who want to make that trip. And there's a slightly longer alternate route that people making that trip could take. 
that would free up that lower capacity route that others possibly going across town, for instance, would want to take. How do you choose who gets which route? If I were to book the reservation or I make the reservation to do my daily commute, is there a mechanism by which I would be prohibited from creating congestion on the route that would save me two minutes but cost everyone else 20 minutes? Uh, yeah, that's the first come in, first come, first serve reservation. So if you book early, uh, then likely you will get a better route. If you book later, then you will be transferred to other routes. Again, use airlines as, a, as an example. Like you book early to travel from, I don't know, uh, Canada to Mexico, it will cost you 300 bucks. But if you do it last minute, it might cost you $1,200 with two stops. Right. So what makes the later reservations more difficult is because the system is full. So in this case, yes, you will be giving a route that could cons- could be a little bit longer than your direct route, mainly because your direct route is already full. And that requires something like a, a envisioned implementation of this, like so, a, a version of Google Map. Like when, when you use a Google Map, you put in your origin and destination and you get multiple routes suggested routes to your destination and you pick one of them. Now, in in this case, the system is not preventing congestion. It's just giving you the best available, but that best available could be bad. Mm -hmm. But if if there is a reservation layer on top of that, then the system would guarantee that this congestion will not happen in the first place, which possibly implies that you would be asked to wait at the origin and travel later. So once we're in the cars, we're talking autonomous vehicles, I know there's another strand of your work that looks at adaptive cruise control and how the cars actually operate. What are some of the variables that you look at for how the cars are going to operate? We can think certainly minimize congestion. That's one variable I expect. Obviously, maximize safety. Now, minimize congestion, maximize safety, those might come uh, into conflict with each other, maximize comfort. How do we think about the trade-offs and the balancing between the different variables that we can be working to maximize? Let's divide this question into layers a bit. The the first task, what I call a micro-driving task. So the, the AV, the autonomous vehicle, needs to drive itself as fast as possible because you want to get there quickly, but without killing you or killing other occupants of vehicles. So we have to guarantee safety. So the vehicles need to space up sufficiently such that if the vehicle ahead of it has to come to a stop, uh, emergency stop or an aggressive stop, then you have sufficient time, your vehicle has sufficient time to come to a complete stop without crashing into the vehicle ahead. So As a minimum requirement, we should have maintained spacing between cars sufficient for the following vehicle to understand that the lead vehicle is slowing down, react to that, decelerate, and stop without crashing into the vehicle ahead. So this is a micro-driving task. In addition to that, what if the lane you are in is uh, congested by the adjacent lane is okay? then there's another micro-driving task, which is the possibility of changing lane, in which case you need your vehicle needs to see that there is sufficient gap in the adjacent lane that you can complete the maneuver, again, without having cars crash into each other. So still a micro-driving task. And then 
now you can imagine if all cars are smart and automated, those like when you're making a maneuver, you're affecting the vehicles that are in your immediate vicinity, like a bubble around your vehicle. Any car within that bubble, if these cars communicate with each other, they can make this process much smoother. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if your car ahead of me tells my car, I'm slowing down now, so I don't have to rely on your brake lights, for instance, to understand that you're slowing down, but rather instantly, we can cooperate. It's cooperative adaptive cruise control where the, the vehicles cooperate to uh, be able to drive in tight formations while doing so safely because they know what's going on on a fraction of a second basis. So still a micro driving task. Now, there is on top of all of this, the traffic management task that not only I'm driving, the vehicle is driving itself to not collide in the vehicle ahead of it. But if it is aware that half a kilometer downstream or a kilometer downstream, there is uh, heavy traffic merging from an on-ramp and everybody's better off if it slows down a little bit, then it would slow down for the purpose of the traffic management goal, which is preventing a bottleneck from being activated and triggering stop and go conditions. So here the vehicle is slowing down, not because it's crashing in the vehicle ahead of it, but because it's better for traffic. So you have several layers. At a minimum, you want to guarantee safety. Then you want to maximize micro-efficiency. I want to drive as close, as fast as possible without colliding in the vehicle ahead of me because that saves me time when I travel faster. So this is, again, micro-efficiency. And then... There is another layer of efficiency gained from proper traffic management that the vehicle can also be aware of the environment and act as such. Like if I'm approaching a traffic light and the traffic light tells me, tells my car, you know what, I'm changing in 20 seconds. So there is no point rushing and stopping at the traffic light, just pace your speed Mm -hmm. such that you arrive at the traffic light at the instant it's switching for you. So you can gain those traffic management efficiencies by giving driving commands to the autonomous vehicles, not for the sake of its immediate driving, but for the bigger picture, if you will. You mentioned that you are talking to uh, municipalities, cities about actually possibly implementing and testing some of these technologies. What's the path to actual implementation in the field, either at the, the test level, obviously that will come first, but longer term, when might folks start to see these technologies uh, or perhaps just not see them, but experience the benefits of these technologies invisibly in their day-to-day lives out in the real world? There is a number of universities who have systems uh, that promise improvements like smart traffic lights and so on. Uh, us are one of them. So I would expect in the next few years, two, three, four, five years, there would be successful small-scale deployments as in this, like at the scale of one traffic light, five traffic lights, one in its neighbors, and so on. Once this is demonstrated to work, then you'd get into productizing and commercializing and so on. So I would say we are in the latter stages of research. So research as a concept is not new. We've been on it for 20 years. Right. But it's maturing to the point now where we think it's like road worthy, but we need to test it because like when I say put eyes on a traffic light, it's easier said than done. We need to put <laughs> cameras and they need to 
process the videos coming from the cameras. You have to make sure that they are working when it's snowing and it's when it's raining and then when there is glare and this and that. So there are a number of technical issues that you have to take care of and test uh, in the field. You have to figure out what kind of computing, where the computing is going to take place. Like it's easy for me to have uh, a, a nice desktop in my office to crunch numbers, but are, are we going to put a desktop at each traffic light? So mm-hmm. it has to be like a tiny little computer the size of an iPhone, for instance, that is capable enough to crunch the numbers and come up with decisions in, in real time. So we are in this stage where we're dotting the I's, crossing the T's, testing things, failing and succeeding and so on. So think of this as uh, your iPhone 10, 12 years ago when it first came out, it mm-hmm. looks nice, but there's nowhere near what it is today. Uh, but once people get used to it, then progression would, would go from there. Yeah, I expect you face uh, similar challenges. I know from the adjacent field, from autonomous vehicles, um, self-driving cars, one of my favorite examples, I I don't know what color fire hydrants might be in in Toronto, but if you have red fire hydrants and someone is walking down the street wearing red pants and brown or green uh, top, they might look like a fire hydrant to a a car (laughs) because... They've got a, a two to three foot tall bit of red post that looks like a fire hydrant and they blend into the background like foliage. And you, you need to be able to account for occurrences like that um, without having the yeah. car think, there's a fire hydrant in front of me, let's slam on the brakes. Yes, absolutely. There are all kinds of technical details and social behavior details, for instance. Like if you know for certain that uh, if you step in front of a, an autonomous vehicle, it will stop. Mm-hmm. You might be tempted to abuse this. And um, like anytime you want to jaywalk, you just walk across and all these cars will slam the brakes <laughs> yep. if they see you. <laughs> A great, uh, another uh, dimension of the, the social challenges to adoption. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Really interesting work. And I hope sooner than later to be able to uh, actually uh, experience more of this uh, out in the real world, because I know... I sure uh, don't like traffic as much as anyone else. So uh, thank you uh, for your time and talking with us. Uh, You're welcome. Me neither. I don't like traffic, by the way. I just (laughs) try to fix it, but I I don't like it. Thank you for having me. This is your chance to be the the mad evil mad scientist, and you you pivot your research. I'm going to maximize uh, traffic in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Probably too easy to do. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleegey is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC. NGTC.